You're listening to A Strange Arrangement. Hello, and welcome. This is the show where we have a guest take the classic New Year's song, Old Lang Syne, and rearrange it into something totally new. My guest will sit down, hash something out, and send a recording to me of what they've arranged. And usually they'll also send along a score, with the notes written down so that you can see what's happening in the arrangement while you listen to it. These scores are available on the website, by the way, asamusicpodcast.com. It's a great tool for understanding and following the music. But it's not a perfect one. For as much as the transcribing of music has developed over the centuries, it is still an imprecise science. You can write notes and rhythms, volume and duration, but interpretation? That is something that most likely will never properly be written down. There is so much that goes into a musical performance that can't be written down. The gentle push and pull of the time. A slight pause before an important resolution. The breath right before an important moment. The minutia of difference in volume climbing just noticeably as the music pushes towards the climax. The parallel paths that each note travels through the air like following invisible strings as the noise waxes and wanes. That conjures images both big and small. It's the little details that musicians use when provided with ink on paper to create sounds of reaching the mountain's peak, of watching the sunset, of a warm hello, or a tearful goodbye. There's a crucial component to music that's missing from what's on the page, the human component, the part that helps the performer connect with the audience, that unspoken piece of the self that performers try so hard to share, which is why they spend thousands of hours honing their skills, not just to play the notes on the page, but to help those notes to mean something. And admittedly, I had a difficult time adjusting to that idea. Sometimes as an adult, today I still do. I will often look at a piece of music and take it as gospel, forgetting that I am interpreting the music, not relaying the notes back like a robot. And so when our guest today, James Fernando, shared the audio of his arrangement and the score to go along with it, the one thing I was struck by was how much of his arrangement and his performance wasn't on the page I was looking at. And I wanted to ask him about it. So, for the first time on this podcast, I got in my car, drove an hour up to Baltimore, and had a face-to-face -face interview with our guest today, James Fernando, jazz pianist on how he came up with the arrangement he made for this episode. We talked at great length about many different moments in the music, and so I thought it might help to play the music first, right before the interview. So before we get talking, here's the whole arrangement by James Fernando.
My name is James Fernando. We're here in Baltimore right now. And I make music, mostly on the piano, sometimes on the computer, uh, oftentimes composing and arranging for other instruments, but piano is, is definitely my, my main thing. Nice. And I'm very grateful to be here. So again, thank you for having me in your beautiful home. Anytime. This is awesome. This is quite the setup. So we're, we're in a room with a, a gorgeous piano, and it's, oof, it's very good. <laughs> I wonder if you had like anything in mind when you were thinking about the arrangement, because a lot of folks have like, mm -hmm. I thought of this particular emotion or particular memory that was very poignant for them. Did you have something like that? Yeah, I was, I was sort of meditating on that, and... I I wasn't thinking of a memory, but I, I certainly do have an emotional connection to this piece. Like It brings something out. I think probably because of, you know, the nature of this tune and where we often hear it, mm. you know, like funerals and graduations and New Year's and, you know, those sort of ceremonies. It's, it's a very... Yeah, I, I guess I would say it, it it invokes nostalgia within me, but no, I wasn't thinking of any particular memory or moment in time as I was playing it. I I would say it it was it brings out that emotion out within me, even though it's not necessarily connected to one moment in time. I sent you the original mm -hmm. in G. You arrange it in D flat, yeah. which I think, especially for younger musicians, might be very intimidating. <laughs> so I didn't know if there was uh, any method behind that or any any particular performing or arranging reason why you changed the D flat. Right. Well, as far as the method goes, uh, it, no, it's just about training the ear to be comfortable starting on a different pitch and hearing the same music, but reorienting it to that, to that new beginning. Uh, but as far as, you know, the why of why did I change the key, when you reached out to me and told me it was, it was all Lang Syne, I, I, I thought, oh, I kind of know which direction I'm going in. So I started playing around with it, and it was really just a matter of, of resonance on this instrument. Really? Yeah. You know, I... That particular sound in D flat fits, you know, right in this in this specific range on, on the instrument. If I transpose that to G, it's got a very different feeling. Yeah. If I go to E flat, it's it's all different. Right, and this is where I wanted it to be. Even if I take that same shape and move it around, there's there's one place where I felt this really brings out what I want it to bring out. It's very difficult to quantify, but there was some thought, and it really just had to do with, like I said, resonance, timbre on the instrument, and the particular emotions that a certain key brings out. Hmm. 
So a lot of my questions are kind of based on, yes, the arrangement, but also your performance of it. Mm-hmm. Because I could read straight through the arrangement that you've written, but it would be very different from yeah. your expression of it. So that, for example, there are spots where you stretch the time considerably, like mm-hmm. rubato, right, would be the word. And did you plan those spots ahead of time or were you just kind of like feeling as you were playing like this needs to stretch out a little bit more did you have what was there thought as you were penning to paper or was it kind of a performance thing that was i i would say it all came simultaneously in terms of the the notes and the rhythms and the dynamics and the rubato the articulation, mm. you know, it like I said, it came from that emotional connection that I already had to the piece. And so I had something that I was chasing and that, that feeling was guiding all of my musical decisions. So no, I didn't write it in and I didn't, I didn't do it consistently as I was playing each take either, but I, I have a strange relationship with with sheet music and I don't think I'm the only one in that you know what's on the paper isn't really music. I kind of think about it as if you see a map of a city versus actually going and spending time in that city, it's it's night and day. They're they're two wildly different experiences. That's what the sheet music is for me. It's it's a way to help you navigate what you're trying to do and so a lot of these details can't make it on and they shouldn't make it on and really it's just a matter of communication so if someone else wanted to play this piece of music they could look at the notes and look at the rhythms then decide the rest for themselves and if they want to ignore these notes and rhythms that's also fine yeah (laughs) <laughs> I, I I agree. Yeah, I think that's I think that's important for all musicians to remember. Yeah, I, like I know, like coming from like the classical world and also like especially the percussion world. Like looking right now at uh, your figure of ten notes in measure nine mm. in the left hand while just playing the melody in the right hand. I know that I would be stressed about making it very precise right whereas when you play it 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 just kind of feels more like a a movement yeah or just kind of a figure all on its own as opposed to like 10 precisely placed individual notes yeah well that's how we're trained as we learn about music is that you know an eighth note has to come it has to last for half a beat for example so of course you know this 10 tuplet or whatever you would call it would have to be 10, you know, like you said, precisely divided (laughs) or a a beat precisely divided by 10. But no, that's not how I was thinking. Really what it was is the music came first. I thought, oh, this shape is really nice. And I thought, okay, how can I write that out? How can this phrase get onto the paper? Mm -hmm. So yeah, don't, don't look at the music if (laughs) uh, ahead of the recording. You know, that's something I always think about. And, and and what I always tell my students is 
spend so much time with these recordings, especially the classical musicians, or they'll spend so much time with the sheet music. And then they'll, you know, come in and ask me, well, how should I approach this phrase? How should I do this, that, and the other? And I always think, you know, why would you ask me when, when you can ask Mauricio Bolini or Alicia de la Rocha, you know, some of these legendary classical pianists who we have recordings of them playing the same music. Mm. You know, th- check out what what all these legends are doing on, on their recordings and, and how they can relate to that same piece of information that you are. Mm. So... To get technical, yeah, let's do it. Because I, so because sometimes there's always like chord choices mm-hmm. that I'm curious about, like why this there. So like I, I'm looking at like measure nine specifically. Mm-hmm. So you have that uh, A diminished seven that goes into like B flat minor eleven right. measure twelve. So I, I, so it's the seven into B flat, and I didn't know if there was like a particular reason for that chord choice, or if uh, there, if it's just if it was unconscious, that'd be good to know too. Right. Yeah. So I will tell you, I don't really think about chords in that way if I can help it. As far as this being an A diminished seven going to a, a B flat minor 11 yeah if you if you look at the music that's that's what it is or I suppose you could make the argument that it's a F7 flat 9 over a leading up to the B flat minor 11 which to me are really the same thing yeah the a diminished seven and the F7 flat nine but uh, the what's guiding those decisions is the voice leading so within this Obviously, we've got. Well, I'll start from the bass. We have that resolution. We've got. Right? It's just tension release. This note holds the tension, and where does it want to go? This note wants to come here. There's a reason why I didn't let that note resolve exactly where it wanted to. One would be because, well, it, it, it gets a little vanilla if you just let everything resolve where it wants to resolve. Mm-hmm. Then it would sound like that. Yeah. Right, and we'd end up having three B flats in that chord, and it's, it doesn't have that fullness and... and and richness that I wanted but it's it's also you know I think those sorts of intervals are are really nice to work with and and I like having certain shapes within the music as well but yeah let's keep following these up we have the it's all tension and release this is another one that wants to go to B flat, but I didn't let it go there. It moves off of that really highly tense note, but yet still retains some forward motion. 
And that's how I think about it. I, I think about it all as, as voice leading and, and trying to follow the melodies as they go through. And yeah, sure, there's going to be some landing points, some, you know, where we have the release. It could be nice to think harmonically about, well, what could this release be? Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, one of the interesting chords is uh, this one in measure 12. And I was also, yeah, just thinking about what you're talking about, all those, all those fifths in there is really nice. But thinking about that as a B major 7 with a sharp 11, you know, if you think of, if you forge a relationship emotionally with all of these chords, if you know what a major 7 sharp 11 feels like, you know what it feels like if that is the flat seven of mm -hmm. your tonality, then you'll you'll know what that feeling means. You know that that becomes not just a word that you learned yesterday, but it becomes a word that you can use in 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 your sentences as you're speaking all the time. Because I'm thinking about the voices. You're talking about the voice leading. Do you would you say you have to like? be studying jazz more to kind of feel like that option is available to you? No, I think you have to be open to chromaticism and just continually ask yourself, you know, first of all, can I actually hear all the notes that are happening right now? Hmm. And asking yourself, where do they want to go? And then asking yourself, am I going to let them all go where they want to go when they want to go there? That was exactly what I was describing in, in this example was if I truly let everything resolve where it wants to, I'm going to ignore the melody because that has its own mm -hmm. you know, predetermined movement. And then we have this as the resolution. So I'm kind of fighting, okay, letting it all resolve versus I want it to have that extra color. I want it to be a little bit more interesting. Mm -hmm. And if I just follow all of it horizontally and I think, okay, well, I could justify this melody and this melody and this melody and this melody and this melody. Well, that could be interesting too, or it could be total garbage, <laughs> right? Because like I said, we have this vertical this this vertical byproduct mm. so we have to be aware of that yeah even if we're only arriving there by you know evaluating the the different melodies as they go on their path if you studied music before this is a concept that probably seems intuitive the sound of the music should be prioritized over what is written on the page but oftentimes with how music is taught, particularly with Western music theory, we can get stuck in the mire of key relationships and chord labels according to this particular set of rules. But James reminded me that Western music wasn't created with that in mind. If we think about the history of Western music, it started with Gregorian chants. Yeah. You know, everyone's singing in unison. And then, you know, eventually parallel organum developed where everyone's singing the same shape, but now there's two different voices, a fourth or a fifth apart. And then as we progressed into, you know, more medieval music, those voices got a little bit 
more independence and you know eventually we add more and more voices but even Bach was writing chorales he was writing and his a lot of his keyboard works are the inventions or the fugues or the preludes in there they're written in two three or four parts mm-hmm. and he's just thinking about following each one of these voices making that create a melody and the harmony just exists as a byproduct of all these different voices happening simultaneously. The, your third line has a lot of open intervals, like fifths and sixths. So these are these yeah. are where the notes you're playing are farther apart from each other. As opposed to the last line where the notes are a bit closer together. Is there, do you ascribe a sound or a feeling to anything? Or is it, is it just kind of going back to voice leading again? Like right now they're far apart and now they're closer together. Yeah. So I mean, we're we're always sort of talking about this around the same idea of the voice leading versus the vertical, and you know that, like I said, I talk about the vertical harmony as being a byproduct. It's a very important one, mm-hmm. so we we certainly have to account for it, even if it's not the reason why we make the decision. But the reason why I made this decision was because I brought the melody down an octave as opposed to being up here, and. This feeling of having the harmony in the middle of the instrument as opposed to spreading it out. I like it more in this context. Yeah. Right, it's what the music was calling for. If I wanted to have that same spacing, I'd be getting really low in the instrument. And because of the, you know, the way that that music works and all the resonance it would sound really muddy if i didn't have my voices really far apart as i'm getting down here so i could have done maybe but even that it's pretty muddy you can't just take these voicings and drop them down an octave it's it's not going to work the same. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and like I said, there's always that emotional result. So if we go to measure 11, uh, it's got this huge open sound, right? I, I don't know, I imagine if I, if I have some imagery, it's... It's like I'm standing on a mountaintop and it's this really sunny, it's a very grand feeling, right? And then it gets nice and somber as we come down here. And any other musical decision would have, would have worked. You can make a justification for it, but that's how, that's how I was thinking about it anyways.
Okay, so we had hit on some of the big things in the arrangement, but I also wanted to get into the little tricks here and there that really flavor up the music. You have some interesting ornaments mm. in there, particularly measure four and measure 12. Oh, those, those little sparkles. Yeah. Yeah. The sparkles. <laughs> that's a good name for those. <laughs> yeah, this is something that's just sort of become part of my sound is, is these fun little octave fills. I think it was Gerald Clayton. He's a jazz pianist. I remember hearing him play some sort of swing tune and he did a fill that just, I thought, felt so cool. If I go... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I always love that. It's, uh, I don't know, just... We talk about the emotional result of a of a technical or musical decision, and and that it like tastes sweet to me. It 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 sounds like candy, mm. <laughs> you know. It's always <laughs> the thing I think of. So I think it comes from that, and then also some of the electronic stuff I do. There's this one plugin that I enjoy playing with. I I like to use the augmented piano, where I'll I'll run my my acoustic instrument through Ableton Live, this this software that I use. <laughs> and there's one plugin on there that I like using a crystallizer. It's it's all it's basically just a grain delay where, you know, I can play a note and have that one note shoot down in octaves. Hmm. And that's a a fun thing to play around with. And I, I think sort of the combination of that, you know, Gerald Clayton fill, which I don't know if he came up with that shape I, I imagine he didn't but it's kind of an obvious thing to do just to have four notes that are all the same <laughs> mm. down in octaves but that was certainly the the thing that that i heard that that inspired me on that front and you know like i said playing around with some of that electronic stuff having those sounds in my ears that's where it comes from your advice on how to think about harmony differently or to feel more confident. Yeah, well, obviously, all those things I was just saying, you know, follow the, the voice leading. You can you can think about a bass having a melody and, uh, you know, your inner voice is having a melody and, and that's oftentimes a little bit easier to think about, just one note at a time rather than five, six, or seven notes at a time. I would also say to any of the young artists out there, you get to make the rules. At the end of the day, you should. the only question that really matters is does this sound good to you? And probably the reason why you have a music teacher who you like is because that music teacher gives you advice or they play something and you're like, wow, to me, that sounds better. Now that I've gotten this guidance, my music sounds better, or my music teacher sounds like when they play that thing, I would like to play it as they do. And that's the only question that really matters when it comes to making your own music. Do you think it sounds good? Does it sound 
good to you. Whether or not the chords fit the key, or if the relationships between the notes make sense, or if you've written down every little detail, all of that is fluff compared to the big question. Does it sound good to you? And you can learn patterns and relationships in music to help you get started, sure, but don't let it stop you from finding what sounds good to you. Well, James, thank you so, so much for this. This It's was, my pleasure. This Thanks a, for coming. Thank you for having me. It was yeah. a wonderful interview. It was great to meet you in person. You as well. I was very grateful for my time with James. He's not only a fabulous performer, but also a kind, warm person who can meet people where they are to share a passion for music. The kind of person who's willing to sit down with a strange guy from the internet and talk for an hour about roughly two minutes of music. And yes, we did talk for about an hour. I shortened it down for the episode, but we talked about a lot of great, important topics. Our philosophies on music education, more performance notes, even how big our hands are and how many notes we can play at once on the piano. And if you want to hear more about that conversation, we will have the much longer version available on our website, asamusicpodcast.com. I hope you will check that out. And I hope you'll check out James's upcoming projects as well. Of course. If we're letting people know about my projects now, I suppose I should tell you I released an album in January. It's called The Grind. It's with a saxophone player named Matt Lagan. But yeah, really excited about the way that one turned out and, and happy to have released that one recently. If you want to, feel free to check out that music. Just find me on Spotify. I got a few things out there. A Strange Arrangement was produced by me, Rob McCarthy. I edit and mix the show, and I made our theme music. Our artwork was done by Daniel Joel Newman. You can find more of his work at danieljoelnewman.com. Special thanks to Elizabeth Stahl for notes and for the intro at the top of the show. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe. Also, be sure to visit our website, asamusicpodcast.com. Next time, we've got an instrument, a voice, and a machine. Check out how we'll use them on the next episode of A Strange Arrangement. Do you have uh, additional thoughts on this arrangement that you think are worth highlighting? No. No, I think I might end up using this on... Uh, an album I'm working on. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> we did it. <laughs>